Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in the book of Romans uh, next Sunday, and we'll get uh, geared back up and start cranking through that uh, this, uh, this new year. And excited to finish out the section on uh, the role of Israel, the place of Israel, the purpose of Israel. And we're going to, uh, I think, learn a lot in the next few weeks about that. Uh, and then on to the practical section of the book of Romans, probably the section that uh, we're all more familiar with than the first half, but um, it's going to be a great uh, first part of the year as we get uh, back into the book of Romans. But this morning, I want to preach a message that I think would be uh, timely, I trust will be helpful as we launch out into a new year, a new decade. Uh, I overheard someone mention this concept of 2020 vision, and I thought, oh, that's a good, clever way to uh, think about the new year and the new decade. And, and this passage came to my mind, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I want to read with you verses 1 through 13 and uh, see what we can learn from this story of Samuel anointing David as king of Israel that will set our focus for this new year. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? He said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse bought Shema, passed by, made Shema pass by, and he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in, now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Father, we thank you that 
we have the confidence that every word in the Bible was inspired by you. And so it's all profitable for us. Even more obscure texts in the Old Testament that uh, were written thousands of years ago about things that in some ways don't relate to us or connect with us today. But Lord, there's something here in this text for us and I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand this passage in its historical context, but that we would also see the principles that we can apply to our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was growing up, every member of our family had glasses, except for me. And I thought I had perfect eyesight, 2020 vision, as they call it. Well, then one Sunday, I was sitting in church next to a friend of mine who had gotten some new glasses, and I thought they looked cool on him, and I said, hey, can I try on your glasses? Well, I put them on, and I was shocked at how much clearer everything looked. And I had no idea that I'd been seeing everything through blurry eyes. It wasn't long after that, I made an appointment with an eye doctor and started wearing glasses. That was when I was about 30 years old. And so for who knows how long, I went through life with a distorted perception of things. I wasn't seeing things as clearly as I thought I was. And spiritually speaking, I think I was a lot like many people in the world who think that they're seeing things correctly, clearly until they try on someone else's glasses and things come into focus for the first time in their lives. And when a person begins to look at things through the lens of scripture or God's glasses, if you will, these are God's glasses. This is how we are to look at all of life. Everything becomes clearer. Everything becomes sharper to us through the lens of scripture. But up until then, Those that think they're seeing clearly have no idea that their perception of things has been influenced and distorted by the world's values and viewpoints. Well, even us as believers who strive to view all of life through the lens of God's word, we are oftentimes guilty of misreading a situation and or misjudging people. And the reason is because we often make our judgments or the majority of our judgments and decisions in life based on outward appearances. However, as we know, looks can be deceiving and that's why we must be careful not to allow ourselves to be fooled by appearances. As finite beings, we have an extremely limited perspective on things compared to God. We rarely see things as they really are. But God does. He sees things exactly as they are. And granted, God does not have a literal pair of eyes. The Bible says God is what? Spirit. But in order to condescend to us and make himself understandable to us, God chose to portray himself in his word as having eyes. This is what's called an anthropomorphism where God is described in human form, that he has arms and legs and feet and ears and a nose. He smells things, he says things, he has a mouth, and he has eyes. 
Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah 16, 17, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Hebrews 4, 13, there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now again, the point of these verses is not that God has eyes, but simply that he sees everything perfectly. He has perfect 2020 vision. And so consequently, there's no better vantage point from which to view situations and individuals than from God's perspective. And that's why we need to learn to see things as God sees them, to look at life through his eyes. And I think that's what this passage is all about. Now again, we're just parachuting down into the middle of an Old Testament narrative here. And so let me give you the quick context of the book of 1 Samuel, which is a record of Israel's transition from being led by judges to being led by kings. And God had raised up a godly young priest named Samuel who was commissioned with a special task of anointing Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. The first seven chapters detail the transfer of priestly authority from Eli to Samuel. You remember Eli was the former high priest who died along with his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, when the Philistines defeated Israel and captured the Ark of the Covenant. And after the Ark was restored and the Philistines were subdued, the people clamored for a king so they could be like every other nation. You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they were asking Samuel to appoint some king. They wanted a, a man that they could see. We appreciate that we're a theocracy, but it would really help if we had a king that we could actually see with some skin on. And so chapters 9 and 10 record how God providentially orchestrated a meeting between Samuel and Saul and how God directed Samuel to anoint him as the first king of Israel. Well, it didn't take long for everyone to realize that Having a human king wasn't such a good idea after all. And Samuel had told Saul to go home and wait seven days for him to come and offer sacrifices and deliver his marching orders from God. Well, in the meantime, Saul impetuously launched a surprise attack on the Philistines, which they didn't appreciate, and uh, they retaliated. And so when the Israelites realized they were outnumbered, they got scared and they began to scatter. And so Saul became anxious and he grew impatient. And instead of waiting for Samuel to come, he took matters into his own hands and assumed Samuel's priestly role and offered the burnt offering himself. We see this in chapter 13, verse 10. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me or scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling in Mishmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I, I love this, forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so Samuel 
announced to Saul, you're done. Well, he still had one more task to accomplish. Um, Samuel told Saul that he wanted him to completely annihilate the Amalekites in order to punish them for what they had done to Israel. And God's instructions couldn't have been clearer to put to death every man, every woman, every child, every infant, every ox, every sheep, every camel, every donkey. I mean, wipe them all out completely. And so Saul gathered his army and defeated the Amalekites and completely destroyed all the people. But he spared the king, King Agag, uh, and the best of the livestock. So again, God sent Samuel to confront Saul for his disobedience. We find this in chapter 15, verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel said, or Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Verse 17, Samuel said, is it not true Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites." But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things that's devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as a sin of divination and insubordination is an, as iniquity is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I have feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. In other words, at this point, Saul is just wanting to save face. He doesn't want to go back home without the the blessing of the the prophet. But Samuel said to to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore. So Samuel, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And then verse 32, wrapping up this chapter, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. He's like, I'm glad I, that was a close one. I'm glad I got out of that one. Then Samuel went to, Ram, uh, excuse me, but Samuel said, as your, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul 
and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So that is the historical context of our text. And so here in 1 Samuel 16, we find Samuel back in his hometown of Ramah grieving over the demise of the king that he had anointed and contemplating what surely appeared to him to be a gloomy future for Israel. From his perspective, from his perspective, right, things looked bad. But what he didn't realize is that this terrible turn of events had influenced and distorted his ability to see things clearly. To Samuel, everything looked blurry at the time. And so God, as it were, hands him his glasses and says, here, man, take a look at this situation from my perspective. God wanted to show Samuel that he, was, he wasn't seeing things as clearly as he thought, that he didn't have perfect 2020 vision. He wanted to help bring things into focus for Samuel by teaching him how to look at life through his eyes. And so I would submit to you that this passage is more than just a continuation of the historical narrative about God's unfolding plan for Samuel to anoint David as the successor to Saul. That's what it is in its most basic form. But I think also in this passage, we see two perspectives, two perspectives that we all need to have that will help bring everything in our lives into proper focus and provide us with the comfort and the confidence that comes from seeing life through God's eyes. The first perspective is we need to learn to look at problems through God's eyes. We need to learn to look at problems through God's eyes. We all face problems in our lives, and sometimes those problems make us sad. Sometimes those problems make us scared. And so the first thing I want us to see is that Samuel was sad about what had happened. Notice verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So here we find Samuel who was just heartbroken over Saul's disobedience. Being the high priest, Samuel felt a deep sense of personal loss. He also felt a deep sense of personal responsibility for the welfare of Israel. And so as he sat there brooding over Israel's future, he probably saw nothing but ominous clouds of despair and confusion on the horizon. From a human perspective, things looked dismal. And Samuel was probably disillusioned. He was discouraged. He was depressed because he was focused on the problem. And that's typically what happens, right? When we focus on the problem. We get discouraged. We get depressed about something in our life because all we can see is that problem or our problems. And I think the key to snapping out of our unhappy mindset is to get our focus off our problem and back on God and everything we know to be true about God. That's why I love the fact that we take time every Sunday not uh, not only to read the scriptures, we read the Psalms, which are really lessons in the character and, and attributes of God. 
And then we sing songs that remind us of the truth about God, right? Because we all come every Sunday with some kind of problem or problems, right? And, and we need to be reminded of who God is and what he said about himself. We need to get our focus off our problems and on, back, on, back on God. And I think the, the one thing about God that is most helpful for us to focus on whenever we're facing a problem in our life is his sovereignty. Now, don't you love that attribute? The, 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 the sovereignty of God? The, to realize the fact that he reigns over all things, that he controls all things? And apparently Samuel had lost sight of God's sovereignty and needed to be reminded of the fact that God had everything under control. So you need to be reminded of that this morning. You came in, there was some problem in your life and, and you forgot this week that God has everything under control. You need to be reminded of that today, that God has everything under control. Saul's disobedience didn't take God by surprise. Your situation, whatever you're dealing with, has not taken God by surprise. God was not up in heaven nervously pacing back and forth and anxiously wringing his hands thinking, oh no, I didn't anticipate this. This wrecks everything. Now what am I gonna do? The Bible clearly states that God has predetermined from eternity past, everything that has happened and will happen. That means God is never surprised. He's never caught off guard by unexpected developments like we are. Whoop, didn't expect that. Didn't expect that to happen. Didn't expect them to do that. Didn't expect to hear that from the doctor. See, there's no such thing as unforeseen circumstances to God. He sees the end from the beginning. And therefore, we can rest assured that no matter what is going on in this world or what is going on in our lives, we are safe in God's hands. And he is daily ordering the events of our world and our lives in a way that will bring him the greatest glory and accomplish the greatest good in us. Jerry Bridges wrote that classic book, Trusting God. It's probably the one book I've given out, recommended more than any other book ever. And he just says some really down-to-earth practical stuff like this. Quote, did your car break down when you could least afford the repairs? How often does that happen, right? Did you miss an important meeting because the plane you were to fly on developed mechanical problems? The God who controls the stars in their courses also controls nuts and bolts and everything on your car and on that plane you were to fly in. If we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continually at work in every aspect and in every moment of our lives. And by the way, this applies to every problem that we face in life from the big problems to the small problems, the traffic jam, the misplaced wallet, the argument with your spouse, the miscarriage, the wayward son or daughter, the unfair coach or professor, the leaky roof, the failed class, the lost job, 
the parking ticket, the dead battery, right? You fill in the blanks. The, this is one I've recently been working through, the incompetent customer service representative. I don't know if you ever talked to any of those people on the phone, but God is sovereign over even that. And nothing brings us as believers more comfort, more hope than knowing that God is sovereignly at work in every detail of our lives, no matter what it is, good or bad. And God wanted Samuel to know that despite how bad things looked, he was up to something good. Romans 8, 28, for God works what? All things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So God gently... Knowing God, I'm saying it's gently. He gently rebuked him for mourning over Saul's disobedience. Saul's disobedience hadn't thwarted his plan. It was all part of his plan to establish his everlasting kingdom through David, not Saul. Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. And in the same way the people had rejected God as their king, God had rejected Saul as his king. One commentator said it very well. He said this, quote, David had been chosen from eternity past to be the ruler of Israel. The rejection of Saul did not force the Lord to a new course of action. In other words, David wasn't plan B. He was plan A all the time. God's action followed his omniscient plan in such a way as to use Saul's disobedience as the human occasion for implementing his higher plan. God had permitted the people to have the king of their choice. Now that the king, now that that king and their mistake in choosing him had been clearly manifested, God proved the superiority of his wisdom in raising up a king who would come in fulfillment of his perfect will. So essentially, God told Samuel, hey, pal, it's time to move on. Snap out of it because I've got a job for you to do. In fact, I've already found a replacement for Saul and you need to go anoint him for me. So he says, fill your horn with oil, go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I've selected a king for myself among his sons. Jesse, if you remember, was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth 4.17 And he lived in Bethlehem, which would eventually be the birthplace of who? Jesus, the Messiah, Micah chapter 5, 2. And so we start off in this story seeing how Samuel was sad about what had happened. But notice Samuel was scared about what might happen. So he was sad about what had happened, But now he's scared of what might happen. Notice verse two. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel went out of the frying pan, into the fire. He went from being sorrowful to being fearful because from his viewpoint, again, this was a dangerous, potentially life-threatening assignment. 
Anointing a new king would be considered an act of treason in Saul's eyes. Saul had already demonstrated that he had no respect for the priesthood when he grabbed a hold of Samuel and tore his robe. And now that his throne was threatened, there was no telling what he might do next. Not only was he a hothead, but he was terrorized by an evil spirit. Verse 14 here, we say, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. I mean, this is the guy that would throw a spear at you if he didn't like something you did. If you hacked him off, he'd pick up a spear and whip it at you. That's Saul. And he most likely had undercover agents monitoring Samuel's every move, not to mention the fact that the route from Ramah to Bethlehem would take Samuel straight through Saul's hometown of Gibeah. That's not helpful. How are you going to disguise that, right? There was no way Samuel's actions would go unnoticed, and so he was scared. But God calmed his fear by providing a creative way for him to travel to Bethlehem without raising Saul's suspicions and to disguise David's anointing. And he was to go uh, to make a sacrifice there in Bethlehem. And so Samuel stepped out in faith and did exactly what God told him to do. Verse four, so Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? So not only was Samuel scared, but as soon as he showed up in, in uh, Bethlehem, the elders got scared. And they were shaking in their sandals, wondering why Samuel was there. I mean, it was a scary thing whenever a priest or a prophet showed up in your, in your town, especially when it was someone as highly revered as Samuel. I mean, his reputation preceded him. This is a guy who in a righteous rage just hacked King Agag to pieces. Like, okay, what's he up to here in Bethlehem? I don't want to mess with this guy. So Samuel quickly reassured them that he had come to offer a sacrifice, and he instructed them to sanctify themselves by getting cleaned up, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 5, he said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Notice it says, He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he made a special point of inviting Jesse and his sons. Now what's in this for us? Well, sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we know what God wants us to do, but we're afraid of what might happen if we do it. And granted, obedience might cost us our happiness, might cost us our security, might cost us our friends, our reputation, our job, our wealth, maybe even our lives. But that's when we need to do what Samuel did and step out in faith, knowing that God will sovereignly provide for us and protect us. In fact, there's no safer place to be than doing what God has commanded you to do. And so I think we all can relate to this scenario that we've seen so far that sometimes 
problems make us sad. Sometimes they make us scared, and that's when we need to learn to look at them through God's eyes. And no matter how bad things appear to us, God is still on his throne, reigning over all things. And even though we can't see behind the scenes, we know that God is providentially working behind the scenes. And even though we can't see the future, we know that God has the future already planned out. And so looking at our problems through God's eyes requires that that we see through eyes of faith. We see through eyes of faith, knowing that every problem we face is an opportunity for us to trust him. And so the question is, are you trusting him this morning? And for whatever he has in store for you this next year. I think it's an act of mercy that God doesn't let us see our future because we couldn't handle it. And he unfolds it as we go. And that's what it means, right, to walk by faith and not by sight. I don't know what the Lord has in store for me and my family this next year for this church. You don't know what God has in store for you and your family and your job and your health this next year. But God does. God knows what is in store. And he's got it, whatever it is, he's got it. He's in control. He's gonna work it out for his glory and your good. And so we need to see whatever comes our way, whatever problems we face, we need to see them through eyes of faith. Well, that's the first perspective. The second perspective is not only do we need to learn to look at problems through God's eyes, we need to learn to look at people through God's eyes. We need to learn to look at people through God's eyes. Not only does God want to change our perspective on the problems in our lives, but he also wants to change our perspective on the people in our lives. And the first thing I want us to notice in this next section here as the story continues, that Samuel was sucked in by how people looked. Samuel was sucked in by how people looked. Notice verse six. When they entered, and again, he's talking about Jesse and his sons. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so when Jesse and his boys showed up, it says he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So when Samuel laid eyes on Eliab, he thought to himself, this is definitely God's man. This is the oldest son. And without even realizing it, he had fallen into the same trap as the people of Israel who enthusiastically affirmed Saul as their king because of how he looked. You remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, talking about Saul. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. For from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So he was literally head and shoulders above the rest. He stuck out in the crowd. And when you walked into a room, the first person you saw was Saul. Not only because of his height, but because of how good looking he was. And so they're like, hey, that's our man. That's the guy we want to be our, our king. Again, it repeats this in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. So they ran and took 
him, Saul, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. So it seems like back or, or moving forward here in 1 Samuel 16 that Samuel was impressed with something about Eliab's presence. Even though Saul had proven that looks can be deceiving, there was something impressive about Eliab to Samuel. And so he thought, hey, this is, this is the guy. This is the replacement. And in order to keep him from making the same mistake twice, which was anointing a king based on the superficial standards of the people, God rebuked Samuel here for judging a person's value or worth by external things. Notice what he said in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Which, by the way, all of us tend to do, don't we? And let's be honest, we're way too easily impressed by the way people look, by someone's physique, by their clothes, by the car they drive, by the house they live in, by you name it. It's like, oh, wow. And we size up people based on their appearance. And in our minds, what qualifies a person for certain positions or, or, or roles are their talents, their abilities, their degrees, their achievements. And whether we realize it or not, we are ultimately determining a person's importance or unimportance based on these external things. But as we're going to see, these things don't matter to God. What matters to him is what a person is like, not on the outside, but on the what? On the inside. And that's what he wanted Samuel to realize. That's why he challenged him to look at people the way he does. And after Samuel was sucked in by how people looked, or because he was being sucked in by how people looked, Samuel, secondly here, was schooled in how God looks at people. Samuel was schooled by God how, about how God looks at people. And this is probably the most familiar verse in this text. I'm sure all of you have heard this verse before. Verse 7 in the middle there. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, say it with me, the heart. This is one of the most significant statements in all of Scripture for affirming the otherness of God, that God is totally not like us. He is so different from us. Another word for that is he is holy, set apart from us. And how is he different? Well, particularly when it comes to evaluating people. We assess people based on their outward appearance where God assesses people based on what is in their heart. And in the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew mind, the concept of the heart included 
a person's thoughts, their emotions, their desires, uh, their motives. I mean, this is who a person really is. When you talk about a person's heart, this is who they really are. And God looks past all the external stuff and sees right into our hearts. He sees who we really are. In other words, God cannot be fooled by appearances. You might be fooling me this morning. You might be fooling your spouse this morning. You might be fooling your parents this morning. You might be fooling the other people in this church this morning based on how, you're, how you look and how you act and how you talk. But you're not fooling God. God knows what's really in your heart. 1 Kings 8.39, For thou alone dost know the hearts of all sons of men. 1 Chronicles 28.9, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. He even understands your motive for why you do what you do. And I love 2 Chronicles 69, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And so as God's eyes moved back and forth throughout the earth looking for people whose heart were totally and passionately committed to him, he found a young shepherd boy out in a pasture somewhere whose heart beat like his. And as we know, David had the distinct honor of being known as the man after God's own heart. But from a human perspective, as we see in the story, David was the last person anyone expected to be king, even his own father. Maybe the one who knew him the best. And as we've already learned, David was just one of eight sons. He was the youngest there. Notice verse eight, that Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So the youngest of eight sons was an afterthought. To Jesse, Samuel didn't even know about him. And so Jesse had to send for him at Samuel's request after God passed over the first seven, his first seven brothers, his seven older brothers. And notice verse 12, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So what's going on here? David was so insignificant in the scheme of things that he wasn't even invited to the initial anointing ceremony. 
It's like, hey, somebody's got to be out there with the sheep, so let's just send the little guy out there. He's not going to be needed here. And so he'd been left to tend the flocks. He was the low man on the totem pole, left to do the grunt work that no one else wanted to do. And yet I believe that it was during those long, lonely hours out in the fields that David developed that heart after God. As he communed with God and worshiped God and played his harp and wrote psalms to God and learned to rely on God to protect the sheep from wild animals. The entire time, God was preparing this young man to serve as his king. And again, this is a great example that, of how God gets all the glory when he chooses to use unimpressive, unexpected people to accomplish his purposes. You may look at yourself and not be very impressed. You may look at others and you may not be very impressed. You you don't think you have much to offer God or you don't think they have much to offer God. But that's a superficial evaluation based on your limited perspective. And we over, oftentimes overlook the potential in others and even in ourselves simply because we're so used to judging everyone based on outward appearances which is hard not to do, by the way, because we live in a world where it's all about how you look. We live in a superficial culture where bigger is better and image is everything. But from God's perspective, bigger is not always better and image is nothing. Character is everything. I love how Chuck Swindoll said it. And I quote, true character is what we are when nobody's looking in the secret chambers of the heart. True character is what we are when nobody's looking in the secret chambers of the heart. In other words, God knows who we really are. And Peter said this to the, to the women who would read his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, Verses three and four, but this also applies to everyone, I believe. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the, ladies, heart, right? With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. In other words, we need to spend more time focusing on what God values most, what he views as precious, and that is a godly heart. We need to be focused on cultivating a godly heart than, rather than on what the world values most, which is being a hottie, I don't know, you know, looking the part. And again, we all, I think by nature, are way too concerned about the way we look or how, other, how we think other people think we look. And we need to care less about what everyone else thinks about us and care more about what God thinks about us. And practically speaking, that means we should spend less time in front of the mirror and more time in front of the mirror of God's word. 
James chapter 1, verse 25, talks about the, the word of God being a mirror that shows us who we are and areas that we need to change and how we need to grow. And so we need to discipline ourselves to get away from the world and get alone with God like David did and meditate on his word and pray and ask him to search our heart and to purify our heart, to make our heart like, like his. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 David writes this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful, wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You see, if we do that, that will, that's what will make us truly useful to God. I love what Robert Murray McShane said to a young man at his ordination. He said, Quote, do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart. He said, it is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And so, what are we saying here? That, that we need to learn to look at people the same way God does, and that includes ourselves. We need to look at ourselves the way God sees us, right? Because it's easy to get sucked in by how people look on the outside. We need to focus on what's on the inside. And in the same way we can't see behind the scenes or into the future, ultimately we can't see into people's hearts like God can I will say this, though. The Bible does say that Matthew 15, 18, and 19, Jesus said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, etc. So even though you can't see into another person's heart, I think we can accurately discern what is in their hearts by looking at their words, looking at their actions, looking at their attitudes. What can people discern about you? What's in your heart? What kind of heart you have based on listening to you talk? Watching you live your life. I know you're, there's people you work with, people you go to school with, you, people you interact with, your neighbors, and, and just based on what's coming out of their mouth, you know what's in their heart. Just looking at the way they're acting, the way they're living, the choices they're making, you know what's in their heart. And so looking at people through God's eyes requires that we look through, not eyes of faith, eyes of fruit. Eyes of fruit, that, that we know that every person can be truly identified by the way they live their life. Well, Samuel followed God's leading. He anointed David, who became the greatest king in the history of Israel, but we also know he was simply a prototype of a much greater king. King Jesus, the Messiah. I find it ironic that in the same way that David was almost overlooked by both Jesse and Samuel, Jesus was overlooked by the people in his day simply because he didn't look 
like they expected the Messiah to look. Isaiah 53, verse 2, talking about Christ, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, based on Jesus' outward appearance, people didn't recognize him as anything special. And so they rejected him as their king. And sadly, most people today continue to do the same thing. But those who see Jesus for who he really is, God's one and only son, who died in the place of all those who would trust in him alone for their salvation and submit to him as their Lord, as their king, they will have the comfort of knowing that their sins are forgiven. They will have the confidence of knowing that they will go to heaven and live there forever when they die. The question is, do you have that comfort? Do you have that confidence this morning that your sins are forgiven and that you're on your way to heaven? You can have that confidence. You can have that hope and that comfort if you're willing to turn from your sin and commit your life to follow and obey Jesus as your Savior and Master. And when you do that, you will have, spiritually speaking, perfect 2020 vision. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text and this story that has so many practical insights for us today. Lord, we confess that we are limited in our perspective and we desperately need to see things the way you see them, our problems, people, who often are the same thing. They're one of the same people are our problem. We need to see all these things through your eyes and from your perspective. And most importantly, we need to see Christ from your perspective, your one and only precious son, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to come to you for salvation, for forgiveness, for rescue, for eternal life. Lord, as we launch into a new year together as individuals, as families, as a church, Lord, that you would give us your eyes, you would give us your heart, and that that would be revealed in the way that we love and serve one another so well, and in the burden that we have to reach those who are not yet saved, that we would be bold witnesses for Christ, exalting Christ in our lives with our lips, through our testimonies, 
and that you'd use us, Lord, to bring many to come to know Christ this year, we pray for your glory and for the exaltation of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.